O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble, and gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Those are the first three verses of Psalm 107, the first 32 verses of which are the psalm appointed for today, Friday, August the 12th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our look at the story of the life of Samson today in Judges 14, 20 through verse, or chapter 15, verse 20, in John's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 43 to 54, and in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 7, verses 17 to 29. So obviously, we've got a lot of verses to deal with uh, today, largely in the story about Samson. So remember from yesterday that Samson, uh, Samson's wife tricked him into revealing the riddle, which cost him 30 um, pieces of clothing, and he, he goes and, and to another Philistine city and slaughters the people there, 30 men there, gets their clothing and gives it to these people, and then he's so angry he leaves and goes back to his father's house. So that that's the prelude to what we get here to begin this. And Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. So they've said, okay, he's not going to be able to to uh, consummate this marriage. He's left her. So now, okay, you can have her. So this is similar to what, what Saul did with his daughter, Michal, uh, when, with David. David had been his her husband. And then Saul, after after he fears David, gives her to another, and then he has to get her back. So that's what's happening here. And after some days, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with the young goat. And he said, I'll go into my wife in the chamber, which is to consummate the marriage. But her father would not allow him to go in. And the father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. So we get another play on a theme here, and it sounds a little bit like... Um, Isaac's or not Isaac, Jacob's deal when he goes back to get a wife from his um, ultimate father-in-law, but who is also his uncle Laban, and so he tricks her, tricks him, Jacob, and gives the older daughter to him, and then he says, "Wait, wait, wait! We made a deal for this," and he says, "Now, nah, well, I had to change that. That's not the custom here. So, if you work another seven years, you can have her sister." So here, this is kind of what's going on. It's a, a bait-and-switch thing. He says, well, hey, isn't she more beautiful anyway? Go ahead, take her. And Samson said to them, this time I shall not be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Now, <clears throat> I shall be innocent, sorry, because the previous time when he went down and killed those 30 people, they hadn't done anything to him. So he had no right to kill them. <clears throat> so he went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. Do you see why this is so hard for me to get a, get my head around and say, oh, okay, yep, yeah, mm-hmm, this is probably what happened. But but I, I believe it because it says it. So he went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. He turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. So they're running along, setting everything on fire as they go because they're trying to run away from these torches that they can't run away from. So the Philistines said, who's done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he, was, he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. So, all right, so we're going to do an eye for an eye. This is your fault. 
You brought this pestilence of Samson upon us that caused us to lose all our crops, and now payback is we're going to burn you to death. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I'll be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. You know, I'm just going to get my vengeance, and then I'm done. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etam. So he's essentially seeking uh, asylum by going to this place. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi, which is a city in Judah. Now remember that Samson is from the tribe of Dan. He's not from the tribe of Judah, but, but he is an Israelite. So, but they come up after Judah because probably the Philistines are looking and thinking, we really don't care what tribe this guy's in. We just know he's an Israelite. And also, it would have been closer to go to Judah. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? They said, we've come up to bind Samson to do as he said to us. So he was in Judah. The 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam, where Samson was, and said to him, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this you have done to them? He said to them, as they did to me, so I've done to them. And they said to him, we've never, we've come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. So remember from Stephen's story yesterday, that he, he tells the story of the deliverer who is bound by his own family, who ends up being the savior of the people who bind him. And here, these guys, the Judahites, whose Forefather Judah was the one who came up with the plan to sell his brother Joseph into slavery. Now these are going to bind Samson and hand him over to their enemies who are in search of him. He said, okay, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, no, we'll only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and bound him and brought him up from the rock. So the, the new ropes... What's being said there is is we're getting laid the groundwork for the miraculous um, deliverance of Samson from these new ropes, which which means they weren't old. So, so we can't say, well, they were probably already weak and blah, blah, blah. So when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became his flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands." So it's this miraculous thing of these new ropes that now become like flax caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it. And with, the, with it, he struck a thousand men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. So he's writing a little song to commemorate what he's done here. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. And that place was called Ramoth Lehi. And he was very thirsty. I would imagine so after you kill a thousand men. He called upon the Lord and said, You've granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Now, that sounds a whole lot like Esau, right? When he comes in and he says, I'm famished, I'll give you my birthright if you'll give me a little bit of that soup there. But it also sounds like the Israelites in the wilderness. We've come out of this place, and yet we're going to die here in the wilderness from lack of water. So God split open the hollow place that's at Lehi, and water came out from it. Again, sounds very, very much like the Exodus. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of that place was called In-Hakor. It's at Lehi to this day, and he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines for 20 years. So... Because he had defeated these Philistines and, and routed them in a couple of different ways, 
they've raised him up to be the judge. In the gospel, remember yesterday, Jesus has been in Samaria for two days in Sychar slash Shechem. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, parentheses, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So they've seen the things that Jesus did at the Passover feast, the things that attracted the crowds that Jesus wouldn't entrust him to himself to because he knew what was in the heart of men. So now these Galileans who have seen whatever he did, they're at the festival. We're not told what he did, but we're told that he did signs and wonders when he was there. So they come now and they're welcoming him home as kind of a conquering hometown hero. They probably aren't aware that he's come through Samaria to get there, because if they had, they might have rejected him coming in. They wouldn't have welcomed him initially, at least, because he would have been considered ritually unclean, having been through Samaritan territory. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine at the the, um, wedding. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Seems a little bit um, rude. (laughs) The man obviously believes. He believes that Jesus can heal, or else he wouldn't have come and gotten him. Now, we don't know that he had been there at the festival. We have to assume that he was, because he's a Jewish man. Um, But now... Jesus is, is uh, not confronting him, but he's at least challenging him. That says, unless you see these things, you, you won't believe. And, and the issue doesn't seem to be that. The issue seems to be, no, I, I think you can heal my son, and I need you to come do that. <clears throat> the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And notice he's expressing his faith, but it's a limited faith, right? Come down. I believe you can heal. Come before my son dies. After that, I don't believe you can do anything. Well, that's laying the groundwork, right, for Lazarus. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. So he didn't have to see the sign. He had already maybe seen signs, but here he goes at Jesus' word. He believes Jesus' word that, that his son will live, and so he believes that, and he turns, and he goes. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them in the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live, and he himself believed, and all his household. That was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come up from Judea to Galilee. So the first sign that he did was the sign at the wedding at Cana in Galilee. Here, this is the second sign that he does up in Galilee. And the man believed, and so did his household. So what did he believe? That's the the question you can always ask through the whole Gospel of John, because the word believe, credo, shows up again and again and again. So what did he believe? Okay, so we know that the Samaritans believed something pretty specific, right? We know that they believed that he was the Savior of the world. It initially began, he's the prophet, is what the woman believed, and then the women, the, the, the town began to believe that, no, he is the Savior of the world. Here, it's less clear what the man believes. We, be, we know that he believes when, he, when Jesus speaks to him. We know he believed the word Jesus has spoken to him, which was, go and your son will live. Here, he himself believed and all his household. So what is it that he believed about Jesus? It's less clear 
every place other than in Samaria. We're, we're not sure. We're not sure what the disciples believe from moment to moment. They'll make statements of belief that seem extraordinary, and then we'll contradict those in just the next minute or so when Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one who's come into the world. Later, within the same few minutes, it seems, he undertakes to actually correct and lecture that same guy. So it's hard in John, it's hard, what is it they believe? Right? So, so they're not expressing the belief that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's not what's being expressed here. I don't believe that at all. And we see it again and again and again in John. In the epistle, remember what we've got here is Stephen's been put on trial. He's been tried by the kangaroo court. He's been accused of speaking against the temple and against the laws of Moses in, in attempting to substitute some, well, some new things. And, and they ask him, are you going to make a defense of this? Is this true or is it not true? And so what he does instead is tell them a story of Israelite history. And in, if, in this one, if you go back to the Samson story, the, remember what's going on there. The, the people of Judah have, have said, we, we don't care what you've done in a positive way. We, we've accepted Philistine leadership over us, and now you've made them angry. So we're going to give you over to them. They're rejecting God's provision of his leadership until he strikes a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey, and, and well then, okay, we're willing to let you be the judge over us. But, but Stephen's telling a specific story, and that story is the continuing rejection of those whom God's appointed to lead them and give them salvation. And so that's the reason, he says, that the brothers sold Joseph down into slavery, was because they rejected him. They rejected his claim to be the leader. And here, the rest of the story that we're not going to get at all today, that what we're going to see is God's, uh, the people's continuing rejection of God's appointed um, leaders and save, uh, the ones who will bring them salvation from their suffering. As the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who didn't know Joseph. Joseph. And so here he begins with, as the time of the promise drew near. Now, is he talking about the end of the 400-year period, or is he speaking sort of not prophetically because he's after the fact, but they don't know. They don't seem to understand and know that the time of the promise of deliverance from Egypt had drawn near. The people, you don't see any expression of that in the people. But, but he's looking at it, you know, from, from a good long distance, you know, more than a couple thousand years, and saying that they were coming to the end of this, and then there arose another king who didn't know Joseph. Because Joseph had saved the bacon of Egypt during seven years of famine. And so he, the king, dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive, because all the Hebrew infants were to be drowned in the river Nile. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So he was, he was gathered into Pharaoh's household and raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And so because of that, he was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and mighty in word and deed. So he was given the kind of education that would be necessary for a guy to write the Torah, for instance, that would be one of the things, because language seems to have been, written language at least, seems to have been invented in Egypt sometime before the time of the Exodus. And so Moses is given the instruction 
that allows him to be the one who can convey the Torah to the people in written form. When he was 48 years, in the same way, (laughs) sorry to interrupt myself, but in, in the same way that Paul, because of his Roman citizenship by birth, and also because of his commercial endeavors, was the right guy actually to reach the the, uh, Gentiles because he had more experience of engagement with Gentiles than, for instance, most Pharisees would have because his commercial interests put him into their world. So when Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. And here's the important part. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Just like Joseph's brothers didn't recognize that they were being given deliverance and salvation by the hand of this Joseph who had the dream that said, I'm going to be exalted above all of you guys, including my father. They rejected his, God's provision of Joseph's leadership, and yet God had ordained this, so there was no way it was going to not happen. In the same way, he says, when Moses goes out to his brothers and he he kills an Egyptian who is mistreating an Israelite, they don't understand that he's their deliverer. Now, the, the questions can, can come from here, right? So, so did they not know Moses' backstory in the same way John the Baptist didn't seem to like fully know Jesus' backstory because he needed a sign from heaven that showed who the one was who was to come? So here, did they not understand because they thought he was an Egyptian, or did they not understand what Moses was accomplishing or trying to accomplish. Now, I think the bottom line is Moses did it under his own power. He stepped out before the time was right to step into the role of deliverer. He knew his own story. He knew then God had saved him for a purpose, and now he's trying to wield the power that he has and and stepping into an authority that he's not yet been given. His anointing hasn't happened yet. He's been appointed, but he has yet to be anointed and called. And so they didn't understand. They rejected him initially. And one of the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And so Moses flees. And becomes an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, why did he flee? Well, because he knew that what he had done had become known. And so now, what's he going to do? Is he going to be liable for killing the Egyptian in the same way that he would, for instance, in Israel? If you killed an Israelite on behalf of a slave, you would be tried differently. And, And certainly killing an Egyptian in order to deliver them from a couple of slaves, Hebrew slaves, would have brought a different sort of punishment on you. It would not have been looked on favorably by the Pharaoh because you were siding with the wrong side. And so they rejected him, and he flees, and he ends up out in Midian for 40 years, exiled because of that. So it's, it's always, all of this is about the rejection of God's provision because we don't think it meets our approval. We're in some way offended by God's provision, so we reject it in the same way that Jesus was rejected by his brothers because they were offended that he didn't step into the role in the way they thought that he should be. So they took offense and turned away from him. And so it's, it's important for us 
that we never look askance at God's provision. When we see something, we need to pray and ask God to give us the wisdom to understand what's going on. Is this something you're doing? And do I just need to sit back and wait for it to play out rather than get in the middle of it and postpone what you're trying to accomplish because I rejected your solution to my problem? 